0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to The Vault, a podcast from the New York Institute for the Humanities, now at the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. In October 1981, Hans Magnus Ensensberger gave the Institute's James Lecture, titled Second Thoughts on Consistency. Ensensberger, who died in November 2022 at the age of 93, was a German translator, editor, author, and poet. He was born in Bavaria and was just 15 years old when the Third Reich collapsed. After studying literature and philosophy at university, he earned a doctorate at the Sorbonne in Paris. Ensensberger wrote in both English and German. In addition to novels, he has written more than five volumes of poetry, including collections for children. Good evening. My name is Aryeh Nair. On behalf of the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm very pleased to welcome you this evening to the James Lecture by Hans Magnus Enzensberger. The New York Institute has, in its various lecture programs, been particularly interested in... Writers who have been engaged with the great issues of their time. Our speaker this evening is one of those we think of as both a great writer and uh, someone who has been engaged with the issues of his time. Hans Magnus Ensensberger is a poet, a political essayist, a philosopher, and now, as he describes himself, uh, the godfather of a new magazine, Transatlantic. Hans Magnus Ensensberger. Thank you.
1: Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to present to you some second thoughts on consistency. Once upon a time, there was a black American revolutionary by name of Eldridge Cleaver. He spent some years in jail, wrote a few books, became a black panther, went into exile, attempted a comeback as a revolutionary designer of men's trousers, and has not been heard of since. During the 60s, however, Cleaver coined a memorable phrase. Baby, he said, you are either part of the problem or you are part of the solution. To many people, and for a long moment, this seemed an apt maxim. Clear-cut, unequivocal, uncompromising. It had the deceptively simple sound of a Bible quote. For some years to come, it was adopted by politically-minded people not only in the USA, but also in Europe and in what used to be called, rather sweepingly, the Third World. The only trouble with Cleaver's handy dictum is that it does not happen to be true. First of all, the solution is nowhere in sight. There does not seem to be such a thing. Of course, there's a huge supply of quick fixes, and zillions of little remedies are being offered by outfits as diverse as IBM, EST, or EST, and KGB. But even their promoters would hardly claim that they merit the majestic singular of Cleaver's phrase. More importantly, however, it has become exceedingly clear that everybody is part of the problem. Supposing for the sake of argument that you were able to identify the good side in any or all of the many conflicts which beset the world and granted that you would be willing to take it, this would in no way entitle you to feel justified since you would inevitably continue to participate in the web of situations, arrangements and traditions which are precisely part of the problem." In stating this rather obvious fact, I do not wish to imply that the baddies cannot any longer be identified. On the contrary, this is fantastically easy. What I find nearly impossible is the obverse operation. To point out a goodie does not any longer seem to be feasible, least of all when a mirror is used in the process. This is a very disagreeable state of affairs, especially for concerned intellectuals who for a century or two have thrived on basic tenets like the following. It is good and necessary to identify first principles. It is difficult but laudable to hang on to them at any cost. Compromise in the face of adversity, rollback and reaction is bad. A radical should be radical. Opportunism is sinful. Consistency is good. I should like to think, though I cannot be sure, that these rules were laid down in simpler times than ours. A man who was a devoted communist in 1912, for example, was certain to be in for a very hard time, but he could hardly be blamed if he thought of himself as part of the solution. The same may be said of a Spanish anarchist of the 30s, or of a kibbutzim starting a new life in Palestine. A few of these men and women are still alive, and if you meet them, you will find that they inspire a feeling close to awe. Unfortunately, their deep conviction to be on the right side has been inherited by a much lesser breed. Ever since the early 60s, a peculiar type of intransigent has made his appearance, a type who is very much a part of the problem since he is uncommonly close to ourselves, our work, our milieu, and our private lives. He is easy to recognize, but difficult to define, since he comes in a great number of varieties. I cannot be sure about America, but in Europe we have seen them all. The stern critic of monopolist state capitalism tucked away safely in a state-run university with tenure for life, the slave of intellectual fashion coming out strongly against intellectual fashion and its minions, the well-endowed bureaucrat of culture with a sickening, sickening fondness for subversive artists, the revolutionary video freak documenting his own uncompromising misery on endless tape the peace research fund director bullying his elegant female office staff, and so on. Needless to say, all these people are full of principles. Indeed, the hazier their identity, the keener they are on the rhetoric of commitment. They all cherish a radical stance, untarnished by considerations arising out of their everyday existence. Now, it might be thought that there is nothing new in all this, the hypocrite and the Pharisee are, after all, well-established and ancient types in the comedy of manners. And indeed, if this would be just another instance of self-righteousness and a double standard of morality, we should be dealing here with a cast of quite familiar characters out of an Ibsen play. The point, however, is precisely that we are not dealing here with the individual characters or with a subjective deficiency, but rather with an absence of character and with a condition of objective proportions. The people I have in mind do not embrace principles because they believe in their inherent truth. They use them as blunt instruments with which to bash others. It is the others who are the problem, and principles are there in order to define them as opportunists, careerists, sellouts, moral, political or aesthetic renegades. The only person beyond suspicion is the fellow who at the present moment has got hold of the microphone and who represents, for the moment of speaking, a higher reality of which, alas, he himself is not a part. (laughs) It is hard to identify this sheriff of conviction, this watchdog of basic values, this guru of principle. Indeed, it may turn out to be impossible. Speaking about him involves a moral paradox, for this is a phenomenon which you risk becoming a part of the moment you speak about it. No amount of sincerity will save you from the condition of moral schizophrenia, which has become a universal of our intellectual existence. The very claim to a state of superior ethical grace is self-defeating. Not many people are prepared to resign themselves to a state of profound and permanent moral ambiguity. There is a heavy demand for idols who would not be a part of the general quagmire, and a supply-side economy will not fail to provide what is needed. This is why we find on our cultural marketplace an unlikely assembly of cult figures who are supposed to be beyond suspicion. What they do for a living is of secondary importance. They may be philosophers or therapists, mystics or ideologues, artists or criminals, gurus or terrorists. The main demand made upon them is that they be part of the solution, not of the problem, that an unquestioned integrity can be ascribed to them, that they be untainted by doubt, compromise and equivocation. The result of this search is a curious hall of fame a Madame Tussauds of postmodern morality crowded with figures like Sid Vicious and Mother Teresa, Castaneda and Einstein, Samuel Beckett and Joseph Stalin, Charles Manson and Erich Fromm, John Cage and Henry Abbott, Tian Qing and William S. Burroughs, Karel Voitila and Ulrike Meinhof, the Reverend Moon and Professor Boyce. What is it then that we are so keen on that we want to acquire it at almost any cost, even if it means looking foolish or crazy or obscene? It must be something utterly lost. I believe that it is consistency. The notion that there ought to be a large degree of congruence or at least compatibility between what we are, what we think and what we do. Consistency is not a simple concept and I'm not sure of its status in Anglo-American philosophy. German theory, however, has been traditionally very strong on this notion, for which German philosophers have developed the term consequence. This is, first of all, a logical category. In any rational discourse, your judgments were supposed to follow from certain assumptions or first principles. In other words, you should not simply jump to conclusions, or defend any old phrase which happened to pass through your head as if it were a valid proposition. Contradictions would have to be avoided, overcome, or at least explained. Very soon, and rather imperceptibly, this rule acquired moral overtones, and finally it became a postulate, an ethical imperative, and even something of an obsession, at least in Germany. Mine is a civilization which historically has been prone to the belief that to possess principles and to act them out to their utmost consequences is good. Possibly this has to do with the Reformation, with the turn the Protestant ethic took in Prussia, I don't know. In any event, it is a recurrent theme in the rosary of German idealism from Kant to Fichte, from Fichte to Hegel, from Hegel to Marx but I refuse to believe that we are dealing here with a specifically German obsession. After all, the utopian thinkers of Renaissance Italy, the theologians of imperial Spain and the French Jacobins have indulged quite heavily in the passion for consistency at any cost. And in our own century, dozens of nations from Korea to Chile, from Cuba to Bulgaria, not to mention Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, have organized their social systems on the basis of principles which are odiously threadbare and ludicrously hypocritical, but which happen to be thoroughly consistent. It is interesting to note that the models on which most existing one-party systems are constructed are of German origin. Entire continents are filled with the monotonous drone of unequivocal speech. In this type of rhetoric... Decisions are always irrevocable. Support is invariably staunch. The laws of history are iron and determination is unflinching. People who long for consistency are notoriously easy to organize in larger groups, in schools, churches, armies, sects or parties. It is paradoxical that the man who desperately wants to be true to himself will end up by surrendering to a collective identity. The intimate resolve to adhere to a set of principles and to follow them to their consequences is no moral safeguard. Indeed, there is very often something schematic, something reminiscent of the bureaucrat about an all-too-blatant devotion to principle. Those who pride themselves on their loyalty to ideas should remember that you cannot betray abstractions You can only betray people. Consistency as a logical category is empty. It is possible to be a consistent vegetarian, a consistent thief, a Trotskyist or a Mormon, a dandy or a fascist. It is therefore not quite clear how consistency ever could lay claim to the status of a moral postulate. Another little problem arises as soon as you ask yourself whether consistency is to be understood as a demand on your thoughts or on your actions, or on both. In the first case, the risk to the outside world is minimal, but you may well end up as a crank. Schelling's theory of electricity, for example, is entirely based on deduction. It follows with a great deal of precision from the first principles of his Naturphilosophie, and is thus quite unblemished by empirical observation. With all due respect to a great mind, It must be said that it is complete nonsense, albeit of an entirely harmless and even entertaining kind. The point here is that consistency places an enormous strain on learning and makes it excruciatingly difficult for you to change your mind. If you then extend your postulate to include the way you act, you may be in for some real trouble. The idea of Schelling fixing a light bulb, according to his theories, is almost too much to bear. And yet, this is an innocuous example. Quite a few brave and decent people a decade or so ago concluded from principles which I cannot call unsound that the best way to deal with napalm was to bomb Dow Chemical. Most of them have learned by experience to think otherwise, even at the cost of consistency. Those who refused to pay this price would seem to be in for a lifetime of attacking Dow Chemical with homemade explosives. But even if you just happen to mind the slashing of welfare or food aid programs for desperately poor countries, you ought to think twice before claiming consistency. Any such claim will expose you to a particularly obnoxious sort of blackmail, which has become very popular in certain quarters. As soon as you voice your objections, some oily, well-groomed politician is sure to get up and say, this is all very well, but it is just talk. If you are so keen on foreign aid or on the welfare of the poor, why not do something about it? Why not live up to your principles? Be consistent. If you happen to be a Christian, for example, the least one may ask is that you go and spend the rest of your life in an African leper colony instead of sitting here and getting on our nerves. And if you don't like capitalism, why not go away and fight like Che Guevara? Of course, this type of argument is not an argument at all. It is an echo of the voice which you can hear on the streets whenever a potential suicide is crouching high on the windowsill of an office building. It is the mob shouting, What are you waiting for? Why don't you jump? In Germany long ago, there was a most courteous gentleman by name of Adorno who had an answer to this cry. He said, The ability to distinguish between theory and practice is a great achievement of civilization." Now, given the confusing state of affairs which I have been describing, dear friends, I should like to point out to you some of the advantages and even joys of inconsistency. I do not claim that inconsistency in itself is a virtue. There is something neutral and rather unassuming about it, and I dare say that it can be abused. I am not advocating incoherent babble, and I rather like rational discourse. Besides, the case for inconsistency cannot be made out consistently without incurring a logical conundrum. Instead, I would like to remind you that we owe our lives to vacillation, indecision and unprincipled action. You would not now be in a position to mind what I am saying or to agree with it if it were not for the late Mr. Khrushchev who behaved, as we all know, like a disgraceful opportunist back in 1962. Did he not back out with his rockets? Wasn't he simply yellow, as they say? Did he not throw overboard the most sacrosanct principles of Marxism-Leninism in the process? And no one in the whole Kremlin had the guts to stand up and say, selling out to imperialism is bad? No, all these old militants just thought of one thing. They wanted to save their own skins... And in the process, they happen to save our skins as well. Consistency would have dictated a quite different course of action. It generally does. Let me just mention a few examples. Take any economic doctrine whatsoever, apply it, proceed logically with your project, and you will eventually destroy the very economy you had set out to save. Act out the (laughs) fundamental tenets of capitalism to their ultimate consequences, And you will end up with civil war and a fascist dictatorship. Attack the social system you live in by any means at your disposal and you have terrorism. Defend it by any means and you have the Gestapo running the place. Be a rigorous ecologist and defend nature against man with no holds barred and you will end up leading a Stone Age existence. (laughs) Build communism... Be uncompromising about it, and your militancy will take you straight into what is rightly known as the socialist camp. Go in for economic growth at any price, and you will destroy the biosphere. Join the armament race, be consistent about it, and you will blow yourself to pieces, etc. In this sort of situation, which has become quite commonplace, principle isn't any longer what it used to be. For those who are still looking around for a maxim to follow, I would suggest the following. Consistency will turn any good cause into a bad one. It is a luxury which we cannot any longer afford. For philosophers who are interested in keeping their thinking as straight as possible, this must be an unwelcome thought. But for people at large, it does not come as a surprise. In our parts of the world, a vast if not vociferous majority of citizens has come to realize, I believe, that their only chance of survival is based not on one or two big ideas, but on a constantly changing set of marginal options. They are quite prepared to face a lengthy and contradictory process of muddling through, of trial and error, even in Germany a society traditionally much given to principles, the last decades have seen a deep change in attitude. Social scientists have taken little note of this process, perhaps because they prefer to deal with big ideas or with statistical data. Nations as diverse as the Greeks and the Japanese, the Swedes and the Venezuelans, indeed most of the peoples who are given a chance to choose, will opt for the blessings of a more or less social democracy, not, I think, because of any deep-seated ideological conviction or loyalty, but because they feel instinctively that a sort of halfway house has become their only alternative to barbarianism and self-destruction. And now, dear colleagues, a word about ourselves. I hope you do not mind my using the first person of the plural form. Let us avoid categories like the intelligentsia, or even worse, the cultural workers. (laughs) And just think of ourselves as a set of people who make a living by coming up every now and then with a new idea, a new image, or a new shape. It is easy to see why the end of consistency is not something which we would relish. The state of affairs which I've tried to sketch goes against the grain of our most cherished habits. One of our main satisfactions in life has always been our ability to carry our ideas to extremes. Ever since we exist as a social group, that is to say for at least two centuries, we have been gainfully employed in going too far. (laughs) Historically, the winner amongst us has always been the fellow who went further than anybody else. Never has this game of ours been played with greater fervor than in the first half of the 20th century. In the heroic times of modernism, the logic of consistency was extremely powerful. The whole prestige of the avant-garde depends on its single-minded courage, on its determination to follow an ideological or aesthetic theorem to its very end. It is true that not much blood was shed in the process. The radicalism of the Euro-American avant-garde did not lead to massacres. In the worst of cases, it led to a certain amount of intolerance, sterility and dreariness. Thus, we can afford to look back without anger to those bygone days. There is even something touching about those black squares on the walls of galleries and museums and about the critics who saw in them the culmination of art history. Some of us still remember the times when poets who filled a whole book with lowercase i's and e's were considered the salt of the earth. Treatises were written on the objective state of composition as applied to the man who gave a one-hour talk on nothing in front of breathless audiences. All these games, however, were innocent only as long as they were practiced as an indoor sport. When architects started to write manifestos demanding that our cities be scrapped, this gave rise to thrill debates, which must have been great fun. When they turned out to be consistent enough to reduce our living space to an unending pile of cubes, this had rather dire consequences, especially for the unfortunate people who were doomed to live and work in the ensuing concrete dreams. And wherever advanced political theories were consistently applied, things took a decidedly tragic turn. By the turn of the 1950s, at one of the Institutes of Higher Learning in Paris, I believe it was the Sorbonne, there was a man called Samir Amin who taught social sciences and political economy. He was a rather young man, close to 30, born in Egypt, and his special field was the economy of underdeveloped countries. He had worked for several international organizations and the government of Mali, a desert country in the Sahel zone, had just given him an appointment as an economic planning advisor. It is therefore not surprising that his lectures and seminars were frequented by many students from the former French colonial empire, from Vietnam and Morocco, from Madagascar and Somalia, from Algeria and Guyana. By way of his theoretical and empirical studies, Amin had come to the conclusion that liberation movements in the poorest parts of the world would have to undo the structure of the colonial societies inherited from the age of imperialism if they wanted to put an end to the endemic misery of their countries. It was no good, Amin said, to do away with foreign domination and to take power without destroying the very fabric of the existing social system. The radical course which Amin advocated had three major aspects. First of all, the relationship between town and country had to be reversed. Urbanization was a plague introduced by the colonial powers. The parasitic cities siphoned off the productivity of the land. Industrialization would require a huge amount of foreign capital, and it would inevitably favor the local bourgeoisie. It should therefore be postponed. Absolute priority should be given to agriculture. Secondly, a poor country must take care not to be integrated in the world market. Terms of trade would inevitably follow the pattern of international capitalism and perpetuate its domination. For a considerable length of time, isolation was the only solution. The economy must be geared to self-sufficiency, as a subsistence economy would bring initial hardship for the more privileged part of the population, but it would permit autarky and thus, in the long run, do away with exploitation. Lastly, it was necessary to protect underdeveloped countries from the baneful cultural influences of the West. Amin thought that the educated elites in post-colonial nations posed a threat to independence because they clung to the ideas and values of the metropolis. Merchants and functionaries, teachers and doctors, were especially dangerous elements since they had adopted Western ways in their formative years and would infest the whole nation with their thoughts and their lifestyles. This corrupting influence would have to be stopped, and the bourgeoisie would have to be liquidated as a social class. Amin's programme is remarkable for more than one reason. One of its more baffling aspects is the fact that it is self-referential, though the author does not notice it. Quite clearly, Amin belongs to the educated elite of his own country. He had spent his formative years in European schools, and his ideas were clearly derived from Western traditions. It would thus seem that he is, in terms of his own theory, at least as much part of the problem as he may be part of any future solution. Granted that his work is based on his experiences in several poor countries, especially in northern Africa, whose post-colonial history he has studied closely, the economic data he amassed in places like Mali had to be interpreted and for his understanding of the facts Amin depended on principles which he took over from European tradition. He did not avail himself of the obscure dogmas and the ideological patent medicines which the West has produced in great abundance. He did not pick up ideological messages like racism chauvinism or anti-semitism, which are very much part of our civilization. No, he took the very best we had to offer, the basic tenets of the French Revolution, the teachings of the Enlightenment, the idea that it was both necessary and possible to abolish the extremes of injustice, oppression and exploitation. Amongst his students were quite a few who came from Southeast Asia. They took down every word he said. One of them was called Q Sampan, another Gengzari, and a third one Salosar, better known by his nom de guerre, which was Pol Pot. They all took their degrees with all academic honors, packed up their notebooks and went home. Fifteen years later, they started to put into practice what Amin had taught them. They were very earnest, very devoted. Their consistency cannot be doubted. The results are known to everybody who reads newspapers or who owns a television set. And the only open question by now is whether the Red Khmer's experiment has claimed half a million or two and a half million lives. I am not sure of Samir Amin's present whereabouts, and I vainly try to imagine what he feels when he is thinking of his former pupils. Mind you, I'm not saying that it is a crime to follow a line of thought, any line of thought, to its ultimate logical conclusion. We are all extremely curious people who cannot bear to leave anything thinkable unthought and we dearly wish to know where our latest fancy, our wildest hypotheses might lead us. That, after all, is part of our work. Neither is there anything abominable about the fact that most of our trains of thought will sooner or later take us to a dead end. In a finite world, this is only to be expected. And if some of us feel like spending a lifetime in their respective blind alleys, this may seem a boring exercise, but as long as it remains purely a matter of theory, I do not see why we should object to it. The little parable which I have just told goes to show, however, that some people are unable or unwilling to draw a line between theory and practice. They are so desperately consistent that they don't know a dead end when they see one. The fact that there is no way ahead inspires them to an ever more frenzied activity. The result, as we have seen, may well be murderous. It must be said that there's a much simpler and less violent way out of a blind alley. Once you are sure that you have reached the end and with a bit of foresight you can find out well ahead, you can turn around and try another thoroughfare. The trouble is that people who have been nurtured on principles often feel that such a course of action spells defeat or even betrayal. Many of them have reached positions of great power. I'm thinking of Mr. Castro, Mr. Begin, Mrs. Thatcher and Mr. Khomeini, to name just a few examples. In their respective dead ends, they hang on to their anachronistic dreams, terrifying remnants of those heroic days when a man could still imagine that he were in the right just because... History was on his side, and because the bad ones were against him. In other words, by being sufficiently principled and militant and brave, a person could become, as it were, infallible. Some of us may deplore the passing of the age of consistency. They might find some consolation in military science. The classic teachers of strategy have always held that there is no greater feat in warfare than an orderly retreat from an untenable position. Only a fool bent on self-destruction will call such a move an act of cowardice. I would rather go along with Paul Feierabend than he says, stamping out opportunism will not make us better men; It will just make us more stupid. What we ought to get rid of is rather our tendency to dream up in our egoistical way some sort of good or rational or responsible life which we then try to force down the throat of other people in the guise of objective values. Inconsistency is not the answer to our predicaments, but it has its advantages and its enticements. It cannot be preached. (laughs) It increases our freedom of thought and our freedom of movement. It is good for our imagination. It is fraught with intellectual risks. It also takes a lot of training, But if you put your mind to it, you may not only be less afraid, but even less afraid of being afraid. It might even provide a much-needed dose of sarcasm and a measure of gaiety in the face of the prevailing mood of depression. We can never know what we have at the back of our minds, but it is a fair guess that it is more than our principles allow for and more than consistency can tolerate. Alas, the end of ideology is not in sight, and its monotonous noise seems to go on forever. Among all the static and the clutter, the anachronism and the propaganda, nothing could be more tempting and perhaps even more helpful than the forbidden fruit of our brains. Let me now jump to my conclusion, which may turn out to be quite different from yours. A tirade against consistency, however timely, may well bring comfort to the scatterbrained. Immersed as we are in the daily mash of the media, half-dazed by the relentless passage of trends and styles and quirks and fashions, exposed to the most banal and most routine sort of amnesia, an apology for the jellied mind is hardly what we need. To defend the charms of inconsistency is to ask for trouble. Misunderstanding being an essential mode of communication, some of you must have concluded I was making a plea on behalf of the man without a memory. I would therefore like to conclude this talk with a tale in praise of obstinacy. Well, obstinacy is really hardly the word. I've been trying to find an English equivalent for the word eigensinn, which in German means, literally translated, a sense of your own or your own sense, it's not really an outside force like, for example, dibuk would be, but it resembles the demon of the Greek. Well, I don't have a word for it, so I'll settle for obstinacy. Obstinacy, you see, is not a matter of principle. It does not need an ideological framework, and it does not offer justifications. The obstinate man is a modest animal, devoid of missionary ambition. He does not usually depend on a theory, and his deeds cannot be said to be derived from abstract postulates. His thoughts do not show up in opinion polls and the technicians of political control will have a hard time in making him out. He is also very difficult to organise. You go on talking as long as you like, the obstinate man will say, I know what I want and what I won't take and I keep my thoughts to myself. Then when he walks out of the door, he will drop a cryptic phrase. He will say, there is no other way. Take the inconspicuous man, for example, the man who is boarding the express train from Munich to Constance. (laughs) (laughs) For though we can do without idols, we still need examples. Just look at him, sitting across the aisle in the smoker's compartment, a quiet, friendly fellow looking out at the dim November afternoon. It is getting dark early at this time of the year. He has grey eyes. He is in his mid-thirties. His clothes are old but neat. He looks like a craftsman. You can tell by his deft and slender hands. A mechanic, most likely, or a joiner. In his spare time, he will go to his club playing the guitar or the accordion. And if he has some money left, he will spend an evening at the small town dance hall by the river. No, he does not read newspapers. Every now and then he will go to church on a rainy Sunday, but he does not really care deeply about religion, nor is he very much interested in politics. Finally, the train arrives in Constance. He gets off the train, he passes the lakeside, he obviously knows his way, but he does not seem to be in a hurry. There is an old suburb with overgrown gardens and warehouses. It is now a quarter to nine. In a minute or two he will have reached the Swiss border. Two officers from the nearby custom house walk up to him, asking him for his papers. He produces his passport. It turns out that the document has expired a few weeks ago, and thus they ask him to empty his pockets. No contraband is found, but there are a few shreds of paper in his pocket, an old badge issued by the Red Front Militia. It is just a keepsake, he will explain later, Furthermore, some bolts and screws and springs. And finally, there is this picture postcard showing the interior of a Munich beer cellar called the Bürgerbräu. The customs men don't quite know what to do with him. In the end, they ask him to come along for a routine check. While he is sitting down on a bench in the office shed, the wall calendar is showing the date of November 8, 1939, and it is now exactly 9.10 p.m., a bomb is exploding in Munich three minutes after Adolf Hitler has left, earlier than he had planned, the beer cellar where the big November rally of the Nazis had been held. Georg Elsner had spent four months making the bomb and planting it in a pillar of the Burgerbroi Elsa Elser, born on January 4, 1903, in Hermeringen and murdered in the Dachau concentration camp on April 9, 1945, the most dangerous of Hitler's enemies did not belong to any organized group, nor did he act upon the orders of any party. In planning, preparing, and executing his attempt to kill Hitler, he was entirely on his own. There is no trace of his story in the textbooks used in German schools, in the scholarly works of German historians else figures in a footnote, if he's mentioned at all. Any expert will tell you that we are living in a society made up of extra-directed zombies and that there are entire generations of us who suffer from anomie, narcissism and loss of self. They may well have a point, but I think that obstinate man is still very much with us, just like 40 or 400 years ago. You will meet him at the next corner of the street if you look out for him. There is no specific sociological setting where you could place him. Obstinacy is not a privilege of the intellectuals, rather on the contrary. I believe that it will never go away, but I cannot offer any proof for this contention. I cannot explain where people like Elsa come from, what makes them tick, or what may be the source of their determination. Like most of the things worth bearing in mind, this is an open question. Thank you.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities. You can find us at Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.